Hello, everybody. Welcome to this special episode of the Naked Security Podcast. I'm Paul Ducklin, and I'm joined today by a very special person indeed. Meet John Noble, CBE. Hello, John. Hi, Paul. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. Now, John has a an absolutely fascinating background in cybersecurity, and we have a few questions that we wish to put to him. So before we start, John, give us a little bit of your potted history so that we are aware of your substantial credentials. Thanks, Paul. Um, So I'm currently a non-executive director at NHS Digital, who are the technology partner for the NHS. And my role there is to oversee um, and provide assurance on information assurance and cybersecurity. Prior to uh, my retirement from from Majesty's Government, I was a director at the National Cybersecurity Centre and I was um, there responsible for incident management, and it was a great privilege to be part of the the NCSC as it as it got set up. Before that, nearly thirty years of experience in government. Well, that is that is a very storied history. Just for our listeners who aren't from the UK, to be clear, the NHS is stands for National Health Service, which is exactly what the name suggests. I think it is the fifth largest employer in the world. So it's a truly national, massive organisation that delivers health care to all of Britain. And of course, the National Cyber Security Centre, that's exactly what you might expect. Now, John, that my understanding is the NCSC had a, a direct connection with GCHQ, the UK's Communication Intelligence Service. So to put it in the sort of Five Eyes perspective, that's a little bit like uh, I guess NSA in the US, DSD in Australia, GCSB in New Zealand, CSE in Canada. But the organisation that's responsible for figuring out whether we actually know enough about what the bad guys are up to. Yeah, so and it's still you know, it's still very much part of GCHQ. Uh, it's important to remember that GCHQ has always had two roles. One is to to, to gather intelligence on threats to the UK. But it's always had a really important role about defence of, of, of communications. It's really been, the NCSC has been an extension of that role. And, and one of the key parts has been extending that protection to industry and to individuals. So taking that knowledge of those who are seeking to do us harm um, and then using that knowledge to promote defence. So, John, let us kick off with our first issue and I guess you are ideally placed to answer on this. And that is that one thing that I've heard over the years, people saying about the relationship between the government and cybercrime, is that on the one hand, they go, well, the internet shall be free, and the government should stay out of this, and they shouldn't try and meddle. But then as soon as something goes wrong, like they get hit by ransomware, or their personal data gets stolen or breached, then suddenly it's, the government should do something about this. Do you think we need lots and lots of regulation to do with the internet and cyberspace? Or do we need to take regulations that we already have and work out how we can apply them so we don't get regulatory overload? Paul, I think it's a really good question. What are are government's objectives here is, you know, we're really keen in the UK to build a digital economy. At the end of the day, that's what the NCSC was about, was to provide a secure foundation. Now, that's 
built, that digital economy is is built on the the, the tremendous um, free enterprise that that um, you know companies like Sophos and others bring to technology. However, you do have to have some rules around how everybody operates, and you have to have some standards. Getting that balance right really is at the heart of your question. How far do you go? And I think you know that's particularly the case when we look at cybersecurity standards. You don't want to be in a position where you're mandating people right down to absolute detail of, you know, you will have multi-factor authentication on this this level of, of, of system. What you instead rely on is trying to encourage people through regulation like GDPR to do everything that they should be doing to protect the data and the services that they are giving out to, to their customers. Yes, the impression I get is that that's an opinion held by the by the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, which for our overseas listeners is the, if you like, the privacy enforcer and investigator in the UK. And, you know, if you look at something like the, the outcome of the TalkTalk breach, where encryption wasn't used, but it could have been. And my understanding is the ICO's take on it was, we're not going to require you to use encryption. You might find another way to do it. But if you don't, and it would have helped, then you can expect us to take that in a very serious light. And I feel that gives everybody a better starting point because it means that cybersecurity isn't just a tick list of technologies you buy. It's more of an attitude or a value that you bring to your business. Would you agree with that? So you, you said quite a lot of different things there, Paul. So I, you know, I think it's you know, the ICO's um, um, office, let's take it back to basics, are there seeing whether you have done what is reasonable to go and protect the data of, um, of, your, of, of your customers? And so they will take advice from the NCSC, for example, on any of the um, technical aspects. They, they, they will get a sense of whether they were the right sort of controls. Um, and it, you know, it comes down to a reasonable test, which the ICA has got a really important role that they, that they must make and then, and then decide what action they're going to do once they've drawn up their, um, their assessment. But a, clearly a key part of it is to have a dialogue with the company you've been a victim and discuss that. And they take into account lots of areas, like, for example, how sophisticated were, were the attackers, um, you know, and what could be, what could reasonably have been done with that sophistication. In the case of Talk Talk, that it was a relatively unsophisticated attack. Clearly, you know, you're, you're now seeing state actors. And so that will, that will require a very different sort of um, process and engagement for the, from the ICO. John, it seems that one area where we might do quite well to have some kind of regulatory instrument that is, if you like, a, you must be at least this tall to go on the ride, would be in the so-called Internet of Things, which seems to have acquired a perhaps justified reputation for building everything down to such a low price that there's no room for security at all. And when that comes to things like baby monitors, doorbells, webcams, and stuff that you're inviting into your home to help you secure your home, and yet those devices are insecure, that seems to be a, a bit of a minefield for the future. So this is an area that the NCSC has highlighted the risk from these sorts of devices. And there have been ongoing discussions uh, involving both the NCSC and DCMS to try and work out what is the best way of doing this. So, you know, for example, the sorts of areas that you can consider are, you know, do you have the equivalent of a kite mark? Do you have a standard which shows 
that you know for example one of the key weaknesses that the um the devices can be upgraded if a vulnerability has been discovered that the the password can be changed that it meets the latest standards now these these sorts of approaches though are fraught with legal difficulties and you can um with with lots of these standards you can apply them a standard which could be seen to stifle competition they've got to be thought through very carefully but i think it's it's clearly an area where you've got to help people make an informed choice so that if you know you're buying something which is extremely cheap but it's you know vulnerable that's got to be clear to the um the consumer so i think that's the sort of approach that people will will be taking um you know other you know consumer organizations like which have done some really good work highlighting some of some of the risks but one has the sense given given some you know very recent actually um breach notifications that more needs to be done to 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 help people make that choice about where they spend their um, their hard earned money john let's move on to the second question which i'd planned to ask you anyway but you nicely alluded to by mentioning GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Now, that is a European Union regulation. My understanding is now that Britain has left the EU, essentially identical legislation still applies in the UK. And this is sort of a 99 articles, as I understand it, worth of this is how you should do things. This is why you should do them. This is what we expect. And then a couple of articles in there that are the very pointy sticks to go with the carrots that says if you don't comply then the fines are not going to be trifling like they used to be so my understanding is a company can be fined up to four percent of its annual turnover for a something like a, a data security or a violation or a data breach is the pointy stick part of that regulation working you know are the the threats of big fines actually forcing companies that might otherwise have done nothing and just taken a chance on it to do the right thing by all of us. So um, let's go back to you know why why GDPR is important and why, as you, as you point out there, we've kept you know that along with other other key aspects of European Union digital legislation. The purpose of this legislation is to protect data, to state state the obvious citizens' data, and the objective for any of the actions around any fines is to raise the standards of cybersecurity and um, people's approach to data. You know, do they need to, to, to hold that data, particularly um, um, sensitive data? So it's a really important legislation um, and it's something that companies need to take seriously. As you, as you highlight, you know, a, a lot of the, the headlines are around the potential size, you know, size of the fines. And, and undoubtedly, you know, there, there have been some very large fines and that can hit a company very, very hard. I think one of the key points there is that the legislation is designed to take senior management within these companies. One of the reasons why the fines are so high is for them to take the protection of citizen data really, really seriously and their, and their, and their, their client data. And I think it's, you know, it's had that success. Of course, there are some, some potential downsides. The potential very high regulatory fine. This is something that some of the ransomware groups are exploiting. We've seen them move from just trying to encrypt and, in effect, disable systems to stealing data and threatening to expose it, particularly sensitive data. And that's 
That's a real factor, actually, for those of us who are concerned about healthcare data. And, you know, one of the ways that they're seeking to, to extort, and extort is the right way from, from, from victims, is basically the logic is, well, if you pay 100,000 euros so that we don't expose the data, that's a lot less than the regulatory fine. So that's a sort of example where you have to be pretty careful that the legislation won't have a negative effect by by adding the um, pressure. But overall, the approach has got to be the right one, which is to get companies' attention. And I'm afraid you often have to go and do that through having the potential for, for heavy fines. I think, though, it's important to point out and this is clearly something for the ICO to answer, but there, you know, there is a process for, for companies to go through to, to appeal, to explain the circumstances. And the, you know, the ICO would want to go and take into account all of stuff that the company's done. I think, though, the lessons for, 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 for companies are, are from this is clearly to be seen to have taken privacy very, very seriously and, and, and cybersecurity. And, and the clear logic is that actually um, spending money on cybersecurity, which of course is, has an impact on your bottom line, but it's, it's money much better spent than paying it out on a fine. I think it also cements that idea that in what I guess we consider modern civil internet society, it's not acceptable to collect data because you think you might figure out something to do with it later. You have to have a good purpose, an important reason, and you have to be able to articulate that reason. And if somebody decides that they don't want you having their data anymore, provided there aren't other regulatory reasons, then you have to get rid of it and be seen to get rid of it. That seems perfectly fair to me. It's, and I think it's, it's an entirely sensible approach. You will often find that actually there was data that companies didn't even know they were holding. So having a, an information assurance process um, and that's something which is really important to us in the NHS, because clearly, given the sensitivity of data, you know, who, who are we sharing with? Do they have a really critical need to to share? There's a host of legislation that we must we must consult. Yes, that that's an overhead, but it's really important that we're seeing to do that. Otherwise, people won't let us have their data. And in the case of healthcare, it's critically important that we do so we can mod, you know deliver a modern digital health service. So, John, the the last question on regulation that I wanted to ask, I suppose for some listeners, they are probably expecting this because it's the kind of elephant in the room of regulation, that whenever you talk about laws relating to cyberspace, the one that always comes up that creates, if you like, a, a great tussle between the governments of the world and the privacy advocates of the world is around the idea of creating protocols for encryption that approved parties can essentially crack if they want. Crudely put, the idea of deliberately building backdoors into encryption protocols so that somebody, hopefully the right people, can actually see what the bad guys were up to if they need to. What do you think about that? So this is this is obviously a complex area, Paul. So let, let's go and start off with some of the things which I think we can agree on. And I'll take them through and if you see whether you, you, you agree with me. So privacy is really important. There should not be intrusion in somebody's privacy unless there is a very, very good good reason. I think we agreed on that. Yes, although I would say that the you know the there are those who would say because that is so important, the idea of creating something that could impinge on everybody's freedom. Yeah, we haven't gone there yet, Paul. You're, you're going ahead. 
Okay, so the question was, do you, th we should, we, I think we agreed that we should always protect somebody's privacy unless, we haven't got to that yet, there is some very, very good reason, but the default should be to protect it. And I think, you know, that's the view of government. The default should be to protect it. If you are going to in any way intrude in somebody's privacy, then you have to have a, a reason which is justified to go and do it. And it's got to go through a process of tests. And that's what the regulation is around, which, 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 which has gone, uh, which went through the courts now, I think, what, two, three years ago. Um, no, more than that, actually, four years ago. Is that the Investigatory Powers Act? Yeah, the Investigatory Powers Act and, you know, a process which which involves authorization um, for somebody's privacy to be in effect in, 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 in treated. I don't think you can have an absolute position to say that you would never intrude on somebody's privacy because you're in effect then saying, OK, we are happy to have any sort of crime. The next point is, I, I think encryption is a really good thing. So, you know, who invented public key cryptography? It was somebody at GCHQ. I was actually at the talk at Royal Holloway where that was actually revealed to the world at last. I think it was 1997 or something, 25 years after it had actually happened. The bottom line is that um, encryption is viewed as a really, really good thing and an important thing by the government. And GCHQ and National Cyber Security Centre a vast amount of their effort is to do that because it is vitally important if we're going to build a secure digital economy, we have strong encryption. So, you know, that, that is not um, an issue. I think we get to the next step. Okay, the next step is, are there circumstances in which it is necessary to intrude on privacy? So, does Sophos support paedophiles? Question for you. Well, that's a little bit of a straw man, isn't it? Okay, but 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 do you, do does Sophos believe that paedophiles should be able to do some of the horrendous things that they do on the internet? Unfortunately, that that's the the rabbit hole down which this discussion so often goes, isn't it? But but we've got to get you've got to give an answer, here, Paul. So I would presume that this is not something that in any way Sophos would condone. And they would, like many others, and I think the vast majority of people in this country, would like law enforcement in some way to be able to go and stop it. And it's the same with terrorism and other threats to us. They expect that the government will protect them. So therefore, you have to have in place, in order to, for government agencies, law enforcement to do that, some way of of them to be able to go and um, um, do it. And that can involve trying to break encryption on somebody's laptop that has been seized by the police, which you needs to be examined to understand it. That really then brings you to, I think, we know what is the heart of your question, which is, so can you have, um, is, you know, is government seeking to have backdoors which will weaken encryption? I think what government's been wanting to have is a conversation with the technology companies to go and see what can be achieved without weakening encryption. And that's at the heart, I think, of the question. Can it be done so that you can set up 
a, a regime where under certain circumstances and with the right authorization, you can allow um, law enforcement or whoever the, 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 the authorized authority is to access um, some form of, of, of encryption. Now, I don't pretend it's, it's an easy issue. It isn't. But you have to have a debate around it and you have to have a conversation. And you can't have an absolute position. I don't believe in this. This is an area where proportionality is key. Now, I think the problems come when you look at this internationally. Perhaps the definition of what the UK would seem to be to be a national security threat would be different from China, who would also be seeking to access. So it is a very difficult um, issue, but I think the way to do it is actually to have a discussion at a, um, um, at a technical level to go and understand what is what is possible. And this is where the, the NCSC has got some views and is keen to have that um, conversation, but also to have the debate like we are now openly about what the issues are, because they're not easy. John, let's move on to something which is maybe a little less controversial, but certainly no less important uh, based on your current involvement with NHS Digital. Cybersecurity, if you like, has never been more important to healthcare, and yet, in a way, they sort of have bigger things to worry about. So for anyone who is in IT, in healthcare, public or private sector, rich or poor, big or small, when it comes to improving cybersecurity, where on earth do you start, given the priorities of healthcare are healthcare? Paul, as, as you know, and Sophos will know very well, any of the customers that you will work with, any of your clients, have to reach a balance between usability, um, security, and cost. Everybody goes through that process. In healthcare, it is particularly difficult because usability, you're doing so on a massive scale. You're absolutely right. It is um, 1.2 million people log on just to NHS England um, every working day. And you've got to make the systems usable for them. It's an area, as you pointed out, where the funding, you know, it's difficult because you're, you're, you're taking money that would be used on for, for heart bypasses or, or some other, you know, really essential, um, um, treatment. Um, and you're going to have to go and divert it into protecting systems. And I was actually at a, um, a great event earlier this week, um, hosted by the Cyber Peace Institute, which was talking about the moral aspects of all of this. And, you know, why are we seeing so many specific attacks on um, hospitals at the moment around the world from, from ransomware groups? And the bottom line is that they are seeking to exploit um, COVID and our reliance on it. But they're also seeking to exploit the fact that digitalization in the future for healthcare is going to become more and more important. And there have been... A, a, through this awful pandemic, there have been actually some really amazing advances from from the within the NHS of how we use um, data. I might just give you a, a couple of examples. So, so one would be around some of the treatments which which the UK researchers have have managed to identify, and that's very much come from taking patient data and being able to use that. NHS Digital have done some amazing work, which is um, which is allowed. And the booking systems so that we've joined up databases that were previously um, not connected between GPs and centrally so we can know who's had a, a vaccination. So we know that when a, an ambulance crew has to come to your house, they can know 
what sort of medication you're on. There's all kinds of incredible changes which it is shown, this, this COVID um, uh, pandemic has, has shown that actually in our response to it, we can be more efficient. 300,000 Teams calls a day now happen across the NHS. What a saving for efficiency that is. You know, a year ago, it was zero. So all this is great promise, but it's got to be protected. And it's got to be protected at a time when we're seeing a real threat from, from these ransomware groups in particular. But we've also seen you know, nation states seeking to, to probe our you know, vaccine research um, as publicised by the NCSC. So we've got to find the balance, right? But going back to my original points, Paul, is that that's quite hard in healthcare because you want to maximise the, the, the funding, but you've got to do so. Otherwise, you risk having disruption and critically the loss of, of data and services. And we just can't afford that. So for somebody who's in healthcare who thinks, I, I kind of know that I'm a bit behind the curve when it comes to IT security, that there are some things that I can see I ought to do. If there was one place where somebody could start, if there was one thing to look at first that gives you, if you like, the best immediate return, in your mind, what would that be? Well, we had a um, a really good discussion on some of this actually yesterday in, in an event which Sophos um, held, which actually, whilst it was primarily directed at local government, a lot of the same principles apply to, 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 to NHS. So what the key things for, for the IT security professionals to be to be thinking around now are one to do with um, how we, we access these systems and the fact that we've really got to move to multi-factor authentication. It is just so important in stopping um, attacks. We have to be able to go and protect the systems administrators because we see attacks which, which are um, being directed at them. We have to address the major problem in the NHS, which is legacy equipment. And it's not so much a cybersecurity problem, it's a it's an IT problem. We have to update systems so that they are not vulnerable. And we also have to respond to all of these high severity alerts that we're seeing recently about them, where we see weaknesses. But that is that is pretty difficult. The other things which really matter, of course, are having an offline backup so we can recover if, you know, God forbid, we did have a major attack. So there's not one single thing which the cybersecurity professionals in the NHS have to face and, and, and address. There's a sort of series of different measures. And the NHS is made up of many different organisations. And um, the, the key thing is that what they've now got are some standards which they, they need to work to. And they've also got the support of a cyber defence operations centre, which will provide them advice and will also help them with that, with their monitoring. The NHS follows a lot of the National Cyber Security Centre um, advice, for, you know, for example, as the target to, as a result of the, the lessons from WannaCry to, to get to Cyber Essentials Plus, um, which is an external validation. And that's something which many other organisations will be encouraged to um, go into. And my understanding is it's not that hard for small businesses to do the go through that cyber essentials program because it really is a sense of getting the basics right first basically learning to walk before you can run and run before you can fly yeah so i think there's you know it, it is designed to to grow in the ncsc's actually just made some some more changes to cyber essentials to make it even more accessible for small companies i think that when you get onto cyber essentials plus the standards are much higher um, and there's some particular challenges in healthcare around legacy systems. Um, you know, for example, MRI scanners, which, you know, can't be updated. Exactly. 
know, when you get onto cybersexual stuff, it is pretty challenging. But the whole process is designed to make you think, well, we can't meet this, but how can we therefore mitigate the risks? It's, you know, it's designed to be a two-way um, um, piece. And I think there's a lot of incredibly talented people out there in, in, in NHS trusts who are, who are working to try and, and, and do this. But it is challenging because of the scale, but also because of the number of attacks that, that, that we're seeing. Clearly, and, and you know, this was recognised as we went into the pandemic, we just can't afford any disruptions. So there's been some great work between NHS Digital, NHSX, who set the strategy, National Cybersecurity Centre, and these different trusts to try and address some of the critical weaknesses as, as we've we've gone through the pandemic. I feel as though, you know, I would summarise it to say we've made very considerable improvements since WannaCry. We are in a better place, but the threat has also moved on. There's been some great work going on, but no, we're still carrying you know significant risks and we've got to keep working at it. We've got to keep challenging ourselves because having that secure digital foundations is what's going to allow the NHS to really move forward. John, I think that's an upbeat point on which to end. I guess I'll conclude by saying onwards and upwards. Thank you so much for your time. It's been most informative. Well, thank you. It's been it's been great to 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 have this discussion and and to work with Sophos again. Great pleasure. To everybody listening, thank you very much for doing so. And as always, until next time, stay secure. Stay secure.